0: I mean, when I started, man, I was <laughs> working in my parents' horse barn, building rustic furniture with a framing nail gun. So we've, we've definitely changed a lot since then.
1: That's the voice of Nick Sterrett, owner of Nick's Custom Woodworks. And I'm excited to talk with him and his co-owner, Courtney Sterrett, right after a quick word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Jobber. Jobber is software to organize and manage your business. hello and welcome to building a furniture brand with ethan abramson the show that talks about the business behind the furniture business on this episode i sit down with nick and courtney sterrett owners of the jacksonville florida-based furniture company nick's custom woodworks now nick and courtney did not have their roots in the furniture business far from it actually nick worked at a corporate job and courtney had a bakery but as you will hear once they committed to the furniture business. They jumped in with both feet and haven't looked back since. They learned the building side right along with the business side. And although it was a big learning curve with a combination of incredibly hard work and unshakable belief in quality customer service and laser focus, they've built their company into what it is today. Follow along as we talk about building your customer base, social media and your company's bottom line, working together as a couple and as business partners, and so much more. But let's go back and start at the beginning of their story. Back when building furniture wasn't something either of them had ever even thought about.
0: Prior to 2014, I had almost no experience in woodworking, which is kind of crazy that we started full-time in 2015. Uh, 2014, I was working a desk job at a corporate company, sitting in a cubicle, working on a computer all day. It was high stress, high anxiety. Um, It literally... I. It was killing me. I couldn't do it. And my wife and I decided to build a tiny house on wheels. So we started from scratch. Again, we didn't know anything about building stuff. So we bought a trailer, bought all the supplies, and we built a tiny house on wheels in about four months and actually ended up living in it for three years. And that's where most of my knowledge for starting to understand how tools work what tools do what and basic concept of building things that's where all that began
1: it's so funny how you say such a stressful job and then you decide to go into furniture making people who build furniture or want to build furniture are definitely a different breed a different type of person because I'm sure that people sitting in an office, typing on their computer, sending emails, look at people who are building furniture full time in a shop, dealing with cutting wood and loud noises and think that there could be nothing more stressful than that and being in a nice air conditioned room with a mouse and a computer screen is is the opposite of stressful but I totally understand what you mean. Sitting at a computer is very, very hard for me, and I'd much rather be in the shop. I feel what you're saying, and I'm sure a lot of people listening feel that as well.
2: So naturally, we decided a woodworking business would be appropriate, (laughs) but it wasn't until we moved into the tiny house, and we were actually remodeling his mother's um, back porch that I asked him for Christmas to build a table, just a pallet table, basically. And he enjoyed doing that. And he decided to put it on Marketplace on Facebook to see if anybody would be interested in buying one. And it kind of just progressed from there. He sold a couple of those. And then gradually, people would just ask him if he could build other items. And it kind of just took off. We got got really lucky.
1: Luck is definitely at play when people start a business, but hard work is there right alongside neck and neck in that race. What kind of work did you all put in? Because you were learning the business side and the building side at the exact same time. And that must have been a
0: steep, steep learning curve for both of you. So the learning curve was really steep in the beginning, learning how to operate the business and learning how to actually build the furniture and market it and sell it. Luckily, Courtney's had experience. She's owned a business, so she had some knowledge of how that works. So we coupled that with learning how to build everything and went from there.
2: And Nick would come home from his regular nine-to-five job and put in another four or five hours in the evening till dark, building furniture, and set a goal to pay off all his debt so then he could go into full-time woodworking, which was his dream, um, to have financial freedom and time freedom. And he did that, I want to say, in less than six months.
0: Yeah, from the time that I started woodworking... I think I put in my notice (laughs) probably four or five months into woodworking. So we were pretty confident at that point that we were all in.
2: We had enough orders for at least a couple of months. We had no debts, so we had no reason to not jump in.
0: And the stress and anxiety of the office job was just another factor that played into making that that leap.
1: And you just wiped it all the way and Happily ever after building furniture.
2: The <laughs> yeah. end. Well,
1: we, we skipped a few steps,
2: but yeah.
0: yeah, we got there.
1: Well, the few steps in between are why we're all, we're all here. So let's get into how you started marketing yourself as a business. How you got your name out there to continue to stay
0: busy year after year after year. So as we said, we started selling on Facebook Marketplace and we stuck with that for a couple months, I'd say. And then word of mouth kind of took over. So people would say, where did you get that coffee table? And they would pass them along to us. And we started with our Facebook page, gained a following on there. And more and more people would message us asking if you can build this, How much would it be? Can you do this? What about this project? And that's kind of how we took off. Um, Today, we focus mainly on built-ins and entertainment centers, but it it took a long way to get to that point.
2: Yeah, we've been very fortunate enough to, to have word of mouth be our key advertising. We haven't really spent any money, honestly, on advertising as far as like on social media posts or anything. We, we did a couple giveaways, like dog bowls or, you know, little items, even actually even um,
0: I gave away a farmhouse table. Um, one Christmas, we, we did a giveaway for a farmhouse table, and that definitely spread our name throughout the local community, which, which probably played a big part in jumpstarting our business into the next level. And we just took off from there. That's where the business started. Uh, the learning curve was steep in the beginning. Uh, pricing was a big issue, as it is with most people when they're getting into it. But we haven't looked back yet, so we're doing something right, I think.
1: You definitely are doing something right. And since you brought it up, we we might as well address the elephant in the room for every single furniture business, and that is pricing. Can you share your pricing structure and how? it has evolved from the beginning that Facebook marketplace post to where it is today?
0: Absolutely. Um, And you say evolved. And I think that's a huge thing with pricing. It should always be evolving as your business evolves. Uh, One of the most asked questions we actually get from new woodworkers or up and coming woodworkers is how do you price your items so that you can make a profit and sustain your lifestyle and, and, stay in business. So it's one of those things that I think needs to progress as your business progresses. So your pricing model in the beginning is not going to be the same pricing model that it is five years down the road. After growing our business for years, uh, we built a local reputation. And we also became more aware of how much projects cost, how long it's gonna take us to build it and how much overhead is going to be associated with it. So all of those factors play into our pricing now and being that we do a lot of custom work, our pricing also reflects that as well.
2: I think a lot of people leave out too also um, competition. I mean, you have to look at your community and see who else is doing what you're doing. Are you the only one? are you not the only one? Um, I think a lot of people don't wanna talk about it, but you can definitely adjust your pricing if you're the only one in the area.
0: And also where you're located in the country also dictates pricing in your area. And as Courtney was saying, competition, if there's nobody else doing that type of job, you have to price accordingly so that your business is still able to operate and make a profit while you're going.
1: Now you get to the point where the customer likes you, you like the customer, you both decide to work together, handshake deal, and then it goes on to the real part of the business where money starts being exchanged, things start getting built. Let's talk about your process of what comes after the initial
0: conversation but before the installation. How does that work for you all? So after we've narrowed out what we're gonna do, what the cost is gonna be, we actually send them an email. They pay a deposit, non-refundable, and that holds their spot on the calendar. So as we get closer towards getting to their order, I will go on site with them, spend a couple hours if need be, talk over every little detail on the project, get all my measurements and then After that, we start building, and a couple weeks later, we do our install.
2: And that deposit obviously just ensures their time on our calendar, so we don't overbook or or lose that spot if they change their mind or cancel.
1: What type of deposit are you taking on it, and how is that laid out?
0: So we only require a 10% non-refundable deposit to get it on the books. And then the remainder is due after we complete the installation and everybody's happy.
1: That's interesting. So you take 10% and you're holding 10% and then the 90% after it is delivered, correct?
0: That's correct. Yeah.
1: Now, 10%, I, I feel like you've probably heard this before, but a lot of people do around 50 more, more or less, but in that ballpark. And that Ensures them money up front. Now you're doing this split where you're doing 90 at the end and 90 is once it's delivered and installed. That puts you in, in a little bit of a hard situation, I have to imagine, because that is a lot of money up front that you have to lay out for materials and hours and work, and especially with built-ins, because once it's in there, you're not taking it out again. That that's right. a, It's obviously something that's been working for you, but it's definitely different than the approach that I've heard from a lot of other people. So how do you go about ensuring that you get that 90% at the end? And why do you split it up in this 10-90 split? For
0: us, I want to make sure that the customer or the client is happy and not stressed out the whole time. So by them only paying 10%, that's not a huge deposit for them to pay. So they're not worrying about that. And I want to make sure that after we do the install, that everything is perfect, which is why we don't collect until after the install. And that's kind of the route we've gone and it's worked for us.
2: For me i think it's just a peace of mind um obviously we're ensuring the time on our calendar with them but we also have to take into account that we're booking out for at least six months so if somebody wanted to cancel on us or if somebody wanted to back out or change their mind they had ample time to do that are there situations that people may still you know want to cancel last minute yes but we've been fortunate enough to just be able to slide the next person up and they're excited that we can get to their projects faster so it's a non-fundable 10 percent you know which at that point we haven't purchased any material because we can only hold so much in our shop because we don't go out to the sites and measure until right before, so for to ask somebody to fork over fifty percent of a project that we haven't even met in person yet or measured for, right. we just have rough estimates. That also ensures fluctuation on the price. So we tell them it will be around, you know, roughly this. And by the time we get around to their order, if we get there and they change their mind, most of the times and you know the price increases. It's it's not as dramatic because they haven't forked over 50% of it already. And then we've already increased it again.
0: I think a customer is a lot more comfortable paying a 10% deposit than a 50 or an 80%. Um, so that, that's worked for us.
1: It definitely has. And there is nothing wrong with something that works for you. But I, ha- I also have to imagine that these are built-ins and they go into somebody's house and you are making holes in walls and you are screwing things down and you're building it so it doesn't go anywhere. Now, how are you ensuring that not only do you have a happy customer, which is yes, very important, but at the end of the day, how do you ensure that you also have a paying customer?
2: So before we deliver and install, say, an entertainment center, we always take pictures through the whole process and make sure that everything is, you know, approved and to their liking. So there are no surprises when we get to their house and we are installing. It's comfortable for us. It's comfortable for them. I think it kind of reassures them there's no surprises when we show up. And honestly, we've just never had any problems when we're standing in someone's house for them to pay us. I think it'd be different if if we were shipping something, which then you would get a full payment ahead of time anyways.
1: I have to imagine that you have a pretty ironclad contract in that situation because yes, you want the client to be happy, but at the end of the day, you also want to walk away with a check in your hand. How do you manage that aspect of it? the contract and making sure that a happy client is also a paying client
0: so our contract is actually in the same email as our deposit so they go over the whole contract they pay the deposit and that is them agreeing to the terms on the contract we haven't had any serious issues uh, most of the time any issues are resolved on site and we really just shoot for happy customers so
1: Well, customer service is a giant part of custom furniture because you are shaping something for somebody's home that they have in their mind. You have to put it on a piece of paper. You have to build it. Then you have to put it in their home. And being somebody that's easy to work with goes a long way in, making that customer happy with the piece. Yes, you also have to build good furniture, but being somebody who's easy to work with is a big deal in this industry. What are some of the things that you've learned over the years? Some of the practices, some of the experiences that you've gathered that have really shaped the way you view customer service to keep clients
0: happy? I would, I would say being open and honest with your clients is one of the top ways to keep them happy. If you think something isn't going to work as far as the design that they send you, maybe mention that to them, adjust it so you guys can work together. Um, what else? I mean, I don't know, man. <laughs> I think I've just gotten lucky with that part.
1: Well, I think you have to be doing something right. Maybe it's just your personality because I was definitely taken aback by the, the 10-90 split. That is something yeah. that I honestly have never heard, but I like it. I like it if, it if it works for you. If you feel like that is the way to make your clients happy and it's been working for you for many years, then there's nothing wrong with it. You... You just keep doing your special sauce of customer service and making people happy. And but there's also the other side, the building of it. How has your building progressed? Because we jumped right into the the business side of it, but right. we forgot that you were also growing your building side of it as well. So how has your building side grown over the years? to continue to make clients happy with the pieces that you deliver?
0: I would say our building side, as far as building style or type of furniture, that's, that's changed a lot since we started. We started, like a lot of other woodworkers, just with your basic rustic style furniture. Um, I mean, when I started, man, I was <laughs> working in my parents' horse barn building rustic furniture with a framing nail gun so we've we've definitely changed a lot since then now we're doing more entertainment center style cabinetry work uh getting more into the finer woodworking stuff so we've grown along with the years that we've been doing it i mean yeah
1: now now I know you said you were building your first pieces in a horse barn with a oh, yeah. with a with a framing nailer which is not it, <laughs> it is not is not the the height of luxury furniture I'll put it I'll put it that way but how did you go about growing your tool collection while working? did you just invest everything back into the business did you have a plan for the tools you needed or did you just buy the ones that
0: you like and sort it out once the once the bill came (laughs) so going back to that horse barn that I started in that's actually the same shop that I'm in now So the property that we are on, we actually purchased from my parents when they moved. And I upgraded that horse barn into my woodworking shop. So now the entire horse barn is our shop. Going back to the tiny house and all of that stuff, all of those decisions were to reduce our spending and cost of living and and everything else. So when we got to the point to go full time on the woodworking, our overhead cost was super low uh, most of our tools, we just paid for as we were going. So sometimes you incorporate a little extra for this tool into a job, or sometimes you know you're going to need that tool. So work towards that. Um, we So we were really big on not going into debt, starting this business. and And that's part of where we still are today.
1: I have to imagine in the beginning, there were a lot of horsepower jokes as... <laughs> As Man. as as it as it turned from a horse barn into a a full building that is now uh, a shop. So
0: I'll have I, to get you some some pictures of it how it used to look.
1: <laughs> I imagine it looks much different because I looking at it, I I would not have known that it used to be. So you definitely upgraded that, and and I think that your story has definitely been one of upgrading as you go as your skills grew you built out that shop and made it into what it is today where you turn out some pretty high-end furniture which is impressive coming out of a i'm gonna say reclaimed horse barn is that <laughs> that that feels that's perfect that's that,
0: perfect yeah that feel that
1: feels like the, the right thing to call it
0: well i appreciate that uh, i really do um yeah, it's, it's been a fun journey for sure. Now, you're saying
1: that a lot of your business is local. And I get that. Custom furniture is definitely a very site-specific thing. It takes an impressively large company to be able to do custom furniture around the world. So I understand that aspect of it. But there's also another aspect of your business, and it is the social media side of it, which has become a very important showcase for furniture makers. And you do well on your different channels. I have to say that TikTok is probably your largest platform. Uh, I think you're over 400,000 followers, which is a rather impressive number to be at. And I imagine that interest is coming from that side of the business, the social media side. Let's talk a little bit about how your company is evolving and making money on the social media side, which then goes back to the actual business side of your furniture company.
0: Sure. Um, So social media has always been a part of our business as I said before we started on Facebook and then we moved over to Instagram and in 2019 we actually jumped over onto TikTok and it just exploded from there. So as you said we've got over 400,000 followers on TikTok now so we have a lot of a lot of people asking us questions how we do things so we're doing a lot more of teaching now as well and working with with companies and and some sponsorships and stuff like that. So that is definitely a different aspect of the business that, that we've added on to the furniture side. It's a hard
1: thing to sometimes quantify your social media presence to your actual business presence and your actual sales, but it's all wrapped up in one. Have you seen, I guess we'll say specifically your newfound fame and your social media prowess on tiktok how has that reflected in your business's bottom line Mm -hmm. or or has it has it is it just a vanity project right now or is it just a way to build your name and something that's separate from the actual furniture company, because that is an option too. There are people who are social media influencer famous that it doesn't necessarily reflect on their sales.
0: It's a little bit of all of the above that you mentioned. Um, We do see more interest in our projects from TikTok. So I'll post a TikTok video and say it goes viral. I'll see a huge spike in requests on how much is this? How do I get this? So, I mean, it's definitely working on the advertising aspect of the business, as well as the the vanity part that you mentioned. Um, But we do a lot of videos on TikTok to help teach other people, to inspire other woodworkers, because a lot of people... That are finding us on tiktok are either new to woodworking or they want to get into woodworking so i i I try to work in a, a teaching aspect over there as well showing little tips and tricks and then along with that also comes your sponsorships or ads from companies that you want to work with now we do work with some companies for sponsorships but it's only products that i would use on a daily basis, anyway.
1: Does well, that help at all? <laughs> that, that does that does help. It does help, and it's it is a it is a new frontier out there, and it is oh, yeah. it is something that people are developing as they go, and and it works for some people, and it frustrates other people to no end. So it. It's, <laughs> It's good to hear that it's good to hear that there is good coming out of it and coming back to your company and reflecting back on your company and maybe in a different way than you expected. I'm sure when you started it you didn't expect to be teaching people the art of furniture making but Now that you find yourself in that role, that is something that is another avenue that you can now go down. And it all reflects back on the bottom line of the business, which at the end of the day is all that matters when you are talking about income.
2: And it's also helped us make connections, whether that's through the woodworking community or, you know, crossing over to other businesses and just kind of brainstorming ideas. Um, a lot of bigger businesses, you know, want to do sponsorships um, if we fit into their their mold. Uh, so they'll reach out. Nick will do ads for them. So that's helped on the business side. Uh, also, the p- personal side, I would say, with the, the connections because I
0: uh, I actually believe that Ethan, you and I met via tiktok on one of your videos that you did if i'm not mistaken
1: that could very well be true <laughs> i don't know <laughs> that could very well be true i think i don't know i don't think i've ever publicly said that i've met somebody on tiktok i feel like i feel like <laughs> i feel like we should all be much younger then but it, it's true yeah. it, we, we virtually met I guess. exactly it, it <laughs> it's definitely a way to connect with people and to expand your community. And especially over the past year or so when nobody was mingling with each other. So there's definitely the community aspect of of social media, which plays a big part of why people do it.
2: Just watching business grow on social media, it's really, refreshing and nice to see how positive and encouraging the woodworking community is. I was kind of surprised because you don't really think that social media and people that work within your industry usually get along, but the support within, you know, woodworking is is um, heartfelt to me to see that because he's met a lot of people online uh, that would either you know, boost, boost his social media or vice versa. So it's nice to see that camaraderie within the the business.
1: Now, boosting and support are very important things. And as a couple who are also business partners, I imagine you spend a lot of time together. And there there are people out there who are in the same position where they work full time with their significant other. They build a business with somebody and there is that business side, but it also encroaches on the personal side because how could it not? Anyone who's ever run their own business or started their own business knows that There is no nine to five when it is your company. And a lot of the conversations probably revolve around business. Over the years, I'm sure you have developed a good working relationship. How have you both learned to navigate the professional and personal side of having a business together
0: when I first started getting into the business side of the woodworking my wife actually owned her own separate business at that time so she owned a bakery so we already had experience working with each other and we already knew that we work well with each other we're not the arguing type Um, she's the boss we already know that but we work very well together and So I do most of the building portion, uh, designing the furniture, building the furniture. She handles all of the painting portion and finishing of the furniture. So she's definitely got the eye for for the detail. Um, But she also handles the books and all of those other things that most people don't talk about in a business. So yeah, the building stuff is awesome, but there's also those other parts of a business that need to be done that are just as important. And she handles all those and we work really well together that way. And we have for years.
2: I think we got a good taste of that with our first business. Um, We learned very quickly that we were good working with each other. Um, He has his his High points, and I have mine. You know, I do a lot of the the books and the fine detail. The detail coming from you know decorating cakes and kind of being artistic, and and then him building. So I think it's a good mesh of both business and physical labor. Um, he's a very even though we're both introverts, he's a very social person as far as being online. He loves teaching people. He loves making videos. He genuinely loves being on social media, where I am not so much (laughs) in love with social media, Um, It's just very draining to me. So I think it's a good balance in that way. I kind of remember that when he's on social media, he's doing it for work and, you know, um, and I can do the back end stuff.
1: There is definitely that behind the scenes part of a business that does not do as well on social media. I can't imagine people tuning in to, watch numbers being uh, added into Excel sheets, but that is as important as the building of the furniture as well.
0: Absolutely. Uh, uh, It's just as important, maybe even more, because if if your numbers aren't straight and you're not doing something right on that end, it's going to reflect on the other end in the shop building furniture.
1: There are a lot of people out there who can make furniture but not a lot of people who can make furniture and run a business at the same time
0: yeah i totally agree that that's why i think the the teamwork that we have right now is perfect for that. It's the best combination and and yeah
1: now there are a lot of people out there who are in your 2014 shoes they are working a job that they don't like they see this woodworking furniture horizon, and they want to make that jump. They want to follow that path. They want to try their hand at the furniture business. And there are also people who have already made that jump and who are doing this full-time, but they're just not seeing the results that they want. What type of advice could you give to people who are out there trying to also run a successful furniture company?
0: So one of the biggest things for us when we were starting out was to have our finances in order, our personal finances, so that our business didn't have to have so much strain on it in the beginning to support us in our normal day-to-day life at home. Uh, we paid off a lot of our bills, got out of a lot of debts and I didn't take the leap of quitting my normal day job until I was debt free. Uh, and that really, I think that really, really played a big part in, in the growth and how we've been able to succeed up until now. Um, and kind of how we did that was taking a look at what was important, um, our spending, what bills we had. Keeping that normal day job was important until we got to that point where we were comfortable enough to take the leap. So my normal day job was nine to five. I would work nine to five, I would get home, I would change clothes, I would build furniture from about six to 10 at night every single day. And then Saturday and Sunday I would also build furniture So that is how we built up the business while still working. So we had two incomes working towards one goal.
2: People that are interested in starting a furniture business or any business really to start small and don't start with a lot of debt and you don't need to take out huge loans to start a business. You know, the fun of it is growing it. So if you start out with a whole brand new shop with every tool you could ever have, then you kind of, you miss the magic of growing the business. You just go straight to the end and, and that financial burden, if you don't succeed, you know, so starting small has a lot of benefits and we're big fans of being debt free. So.
1: I completely agree. I always, well, I
0: don't know if I mentioned before, but I am a big fan of your podcast. I really like listening to it while I'm woodworking. You interviewed a lot of awesome furniture makers. And I, I love hearing their stories on how they, they came up. So keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes. That... We
2: appreciate it so much.
1: Oh, well, thank, thank you so much. And you know, this is the part of the show where I thank you. And, and now I, I'm com- I feel like I'm coming late to the party, but th- thank you both so much. You're, you're the ones who are sharing your, path to success. You are helping to teach everybody out there who's listening how to be better in their business. So thank you. Thank you for for sharing and thank you for being open to talk about your journey. I truly, truly appreciate it. And I know everyone out there listening also is thankful for it.
2: Absolutely. It's our pleasure. Hopefully, it will inspire more people to kind of take the leap and, um, you know, take the baby steps to get there and do what they want. Everybody should do what, you know, makes them happy.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe to this podcast anywhere you like to listen. To learn more about the show, you can visit buildingafurniturebrand.com and feel free to reach out anytime to say, hey, the media network and community for Wood Entrepreneurs. Check out woodpreneurlife.com for more information.